We are looking at uh, personal letters from the Apostle Paul to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. And we get to kind of listen in on at least one side of their conversation, right? We don't get the other side of the conversation. I would love to have heard their response back to Paul. But we can kind of piece some things together and figure out what's going on as Paul gives some instructions to Timothy and Titus as he is about to send them into some very difficult situation. Uh, Timothy, we think, is going to Ephesus. And Ephesus at the time was second to Rome for influential unpopulated cities in the world around the Mediterranean. Like this is an um, a important kind of mega city of its time. And Timothy is going there. And Titus is going to this crazy island of Crete. You ever heard the word Cretan? I hope you haven't. Not Jean Cretan. That, that's another thing altogether. But you know, this, that idea in the Bible is that these Cretans, it was, a, it was a word used for liars and people that were slothful and all that kind of stuff. That's where Titus is going. So these young pastors have big jobs to do. And so Paul is giving some instructions. They need to set the church on track so the church can get on with the mission that God has called them to. That's a big task. And so we get to see some of the priorities that Paul says that Timothy and Titus need to pay attention to as they go to the church. Of all the things you could do, of all the things you could prioritize when you're trying to get the church back on track and moving forward in mission, these are some of the things. First of all, Paul says, of utmost importance is what? Prayer. Supplicating prayer, we're using that term. Supplicating is kind of a weird term, but hopefully it sticks in your mind. It's that idea of not just praying for yourself and your own needs. That's good. Do that. But supplicating prayer is when we go beyond ourselves and we pray for the needs of others. In particular, Paul says, pray for those in authority over you. Yes, even our prime minister. Pray for those in authority over us. And Paul says, that's so critical if the church is going to thrive. We need to pray for people in authority over us. So that's the first thing he says. Second big thing, sound teaching. For the church to thrive, we need to give ourselves to sound teaching. We need to silence the fake news. We need to turn off some of those websites and some of those um, radios or some of those podcasts or whatever it is that's giving us a lot of disinformation in the, in the true sense of the word that's leading us away from Christ. And so uh, Timothy and Titus are sent in to not only silence the false teachers, but also to give sound teaching. Sound teaching is essential if the church is going to thrive. Well, the third thing, and that's what we're getting to today, is this. Spiritual leadership. We need spiritual leadership if the church is going to thrive and if we're going to be on track with the mission. So here's the situation. A little bit of background as we get into this passage together. Paul spent several years establishing the church in Ephesus. He had a couple of different visits, and over that time, probably about three, three and a half years, he spent establishing the church. And remember, it wasn't coming in a gathering like this. It would have been several different households, and the different households would have had household leaders that Paul would have raised up, trained up, and then put into leadership in order to guide and guard the church in Ephesus, and it was going really, really well. So Paul had a very special connection with the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and we see that if we turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, 
Paul is trying to get back to Jerusalem, and he's trying to get there in time for Pentecost. Uh, but the problem is his flight's delayed. He has a layover here and there. As he goes back, honestly, it's maybe not flights, but it's boats. And, uh, and he, but he desperately wants to see these leaders from Ephesus. That's how connected he is to them. And so he makes arrangements not to go into Ephesus, but to go into a port city just south of Ephesus, Miletus. And he's going to meet the elders and the overseers of Ephesus in that place. And so he sends for them and they come down. And so even though Paul desperately wants to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, he takes some time to meet with these leaders of the Ephesian church. And it's a beautiful scene. Go home and read Acts chapter 20, and you get a sense of Paul's heart and how much they love one another, these leaders and Paul. And they meet together, and Paul encourages them, and they cry together. There's some hugging. There's probably some kissing on the cheeks, a very anti-COVID kind of thing. And so they're all together in this place, and then Paul leaves knowing that it's going to be the last time that he ever sees them. The last time. So can you imagine for a second, if you know it's going to be the last time you're going to see someone, you're probably going to say something important, right? And Paul says something very important. He not only encourages them, but he warns them to be on guard against false teachers. And that's the big concern that Paul has, that there are false teachers that are going to infiltrate the church and these false teachers are going to be teachers that are in it for the money. They're going to be teachers that uh, claim that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. They're going to be teachers that lead the church astray from the sound doctrine of the faith. And Paul is concerned that it will disrupt and destroy the witness of the gospel in, Ephesians, in, in Ephesus. And so he warns them against false teachers. Well, now fast forward to Timothy. Why is he sending Timothy there? Because the thing he feared the most has come to pass. False teachers did get in. And they worked their way into the church in Ephesus. And they were leading the church off track. Away from the mission that God had called them to. They were giving a bad reputation to the gospel. And so now Timmy has, Timothy Timmy, has to go and set it straight. Maybe they called him Timmy. I don't know. So he has to go there and set them straight. And so this is what we get to see. A little glimpse of what Paul expects from the leaders of the church as Timothy goes there. So here's what I want to do this morning briefly. I just want us to see three truths from this passage about leadership. We could talk about leadership for the next month or more, and there's lots of leadership stuff out there, but I wanted to narrow it down just to this passage and see three important truths about leadership. Here's number one. Leadership serves the mission of the church. Just think about that for a minute, because I, I think when you're in a church for a long time, if you've been at Bonavista Baptist Church a long time, you get used to and you assume a certain structure, certain structure of leadership, and that's fair and that's understandable. If you go to different churches, you see different structures. It's not so much which structure is right and which structure is wrong. The question is, which leadership structure serves the mission of the church? That's what's ultimately important. As Paul uh, talks to Timothy, he highlights two special groups of leaders. We can call them overseers and servants. Sometimes we use really big words for them like episkopos, that's in Greek, and that's what's in this passage, and sometimes translated bishops. Or we call them presbyteros, elders, or diakonos, deacons. 
And we, we have these kind of words that carry a lot of um, meaning and sometimes uh, confusion too as we get into that. But basically there are two groups of people that are meant to lead the church, overseers and the servants. Well, where did this come from? You ever stop to think about that? Where do we get that structure? Well, the problem is Jesus didn't leave us a set of bylaws. I'm kind of upset at that. And I've mentioned it before, and I'm going to take it up with him when I see him next time. But, but uh, Jesus didn't leave us a set of bylaws. That would have been so helpful if Jesus had said, this is how you structure your budget. These are the, you know, the priorities that you have. Here's how you have for leaders. Here's how many, all that kind of stuff. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time with the organization of the church. Why? Because he came to preach the kingdom. And so much of his emphasis was on the kingdom of God. And the church is assembled and gathered together to do what? To serve that same mission. To declare the good news of the kingdom of God into the world and to live it out in the world. The church does not exist for its own members. This is not a club. We do not exist to serve simply one another. We do that. But we exist for the life of the world. We exist actually for something beyond our walls. And that's why Jesus does focus on that. But there is a structure that emerges in the early church, in the Acts of the Apostles. And it comes to a crisis point in Acts chapter 6. The church is growing in leaps and bounds. So the followers of Jesus, like 3,000 are added this day and 5,000 are added this day. And like there's mass baptisms and, and it would be an exciting time to be part of. But it created a problem too. Because as the church took off, these followers of Jesus were now being excluded, especially from their synagogue system, and had lost their social safety net. That was a big part of it. And now this new community of faith had to develop its own social safety net for those that were most vulnerable. And in creating that, there was a group of widows, it says in Acts chapter 6, that were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They were so excited moving forward that they forgot some of the widows that were in need and some of the vulnerable people were being overlooked. And so a structure emerges in Acts chapter 6. The apostles come and say, look, we need to keep giving attention to the word of God and to prayer. But you know what? We also need to appoint a group of people that are filled with God's spirit to take care of the practical needs of the work of the, of the uh, new community. What are we going to call them? Let's call them slaves. <laughs> That's what the word actually means. Let's call them the servants. The deacons were formed as they were set apart to serve the needs of the most vulnerable. So this is my point, and this is really important. That church leadership structure was formed to make the mission of the church more effective. It wasn't formed to create bureaucracy. It wasn't formed to create red tape. It wasn't formed to hold us back. It was actually formed to keep the church moving forward. And it was formed with two drivers. One was the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. That was of ultimate importance. But the second driver was this, the care of the most vulnerable. It was a justice issue that was at stake. And the church leadership was formed to address this issue of justice. And so that's our challenge today. As comfortable as we might become with our leadership terminology, with our structures, with what we have, every once in a while we have to sit back and ask some questions. We have to say, do our leadership structures help us promote the gospel? 
Or are they holding us back? And do our leadership structures help us care for the poor? Because if they don't, then we need to maybe reassess them. Because the structures aren't just to have like a robe and a cap and to you know, have a position and a, a place of authority and a title. That's not what it's about. It's actually all about the mission of the church that Jesus has given to us. And so we want to be on mission. And that was so important as Timothy goes to uh, the church in Ephesus is to get them back on track, on mission. And that's why we have this leadership structure. It serves the mission of the church. Okay, second point. This is going to be super obvious. I think it should be, but it's also really hard. A sip of water is also good for dramatic effect. Leadership is all about character. That's the second point. And as we think about this, sometimes as we try and recruit leaders in the church, we do sometimes look for a particular skill set. We look for availability. We look for some experience. But ultimately, when it comes to the description in the Bible, it's character that's of ultimate importance. Listen again to that part of that passage as we find it in the message translation. A leader must be well thought of, committed to his wife, cool and collected, accessible and hospitable. He must know what he's talking about, not be over fond of wine, not pushy but gentle, not thin-skinned, not money-hungry. He must handle his own affairs well, attentive to his own children and having their respect. He must not be a new believer, lest the position goes to his head, and outsiders must also think well of him. Now, before we get too far, let me just make a little disclaimer here. And we talked about this in our Wednesday night discussion group about the role of men and women in leadership as we practice in this church. We open up all positions to men and women in leadership. I would just say this. The use of the male pronoun does not necessarily exclude women from leadership positions. Just like when we read earlier on in Timothy that we are to pray for all men, that does not mean that we are to exclude women from our prayers. And so part of this idea is that we see women named in leadership actually all over the New Testament. Paul names a whole list. We went through the list in our Wednesday evening discussion. Women like Junia, who were an apostle. Uh, women like Phoebe, who was named as a deacon. Even in this passage, in verse 11, there's a hint here. It says, in the same way the women, and it could be the women who serve, should behave in this way. So I just want to make that as a disclaimer. But the focus of the passage is not gender. The focus of the passage is actually character. So don't miss that. The focus of the passage is character. In other words, leaders of the church are meant to be perfect. Right? And they are. I mean, you look at Paul Connick. And no, I won't pick out Paul. Well, perfect in the biblical sense, at least. Maybe not sinlessly perfect, but perfect in this sense. They're meant to be mature. They're meant to be respected. They're meant to be humble and self-control and kind. These are the attitudes and habits of leaders, that they're meant to embody this, not be sinlessly perfect, but not be a new believer and not be given to excesses, but someone that we can count on who's trustworthy. And that's what we find in this passage. You know, when you're hiring for a job, if you're in your company or have your own business or you've ever gone for a job interview, 
Um, there's lots of different things that we look for when we're hiring people on. We certainly look for experience. But experience is really easy to add, isn't it? I mean, it just takes time. Sometimes we look for skills, but if a person's willing, you can learn all kinds of skills. But the hardest thing to shape is character. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, look for character first when you're choosing leaders. And that's so incredibly important. The role of the leader in this church and in all local congregations is multiple roles. Lots of different things that we're called to do. I mean, we're called to pray and protect. We're called to teach and to lead. We're called to equip. We're called to disciple. We're called to care and we're called to manage. We're called to do all of those things. But the most important thing that we're called to do is what? Give an example. Be an example to others. And so that's why character has to be first. It says in 1 Timothy, and Paul talks to this younger pastor, he says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's been kind of my go-to verse because I started in leadership at a very young age. Now I'm old and I have to find another verse. But this was my go-to verse uh, when I started out. But that's the emphasis is this, to be an example. Set an example is so incredibly important. So there's two things about leadership. First of all, leadership serves the mission of the church. And second, leadership is all about character. And here's the third thing. Leadership, it says in the passage, is a noble task. I love that. Leadership is a noble task. It's a good work. The New Living Translation calls it an honorable position. It is work, and it can be hard work, and it can be terrifying work, and it can be emotionally exhausting work. But it's a good work, says Paul. It's good. Just as God looked around after his work in creation said, it's good. It's very good. So the work that we do in leadership in the church, it's good work. It's good work. And if we have that calling to lead, then we should understand that it is good work. It's a noble task. I wasn't going to share this illustration because my wife is going to have words from the after. But every time I hear the word noble, I think of Shrek. Do you remember the movie Shrek? Uh, and so in Shrek, there's a donkey. And poor old donkey, he gets the brunt of a lot of the jokes. But then he meets Princess Fiona. And what does Princess Fiona say to him? Calls him a noble beast. And he says to Shrek, did you hear that? She called me a noble beast. And this is what I thought of. There's many times in leadership that I feel like a donkey, but I have to remember that I'm a noble beast. It works for me. I'm not gonna, I was gonna say, sometimes our leaders, no, but I, I have to apply it to myself. But there's a noble task. There's something honorable. There's something good about taking up this challenge, whether it's leadership on the board or leadership in our Sunday school or leadership in coffee, whatever the ministry is. And taking up leadership, it's an honorable task. So since it's honorable, since it's a good work, then Paul says there are things that we should be doing to honor our leaders. And this is incredibly important. Comes up in many passages all throughout the New Testament. Here's a few ways that we can honor our leaders. First of all, support them. First Timothy 5 says, 
The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those who work as preaching and teaching. That might be my new verse. I could take that. I just realized it now. But we need to support those who are in leadership among us. Second, love them. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. Do we love our leaders? Do we tell them that we love them? Third thing, pray for them. Paul said, as a leader in the church, he said this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Even the Apostle Paul needed prayers. Do we pray for our leaders? That's how we honor them as well. And then a fourth thing, follow them. It's really hard to lead if people don't follow, right? And Hebrews 13 says this, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. We don't follow our leaders blindly. We know that there's times when, when we maybe have questions and, and we can have conversations, and maybe there's even time for correction. But there's also this time to trust. If we put people in leadership in this congregation, we also need to give them the trust that they have our best interests at heart, that they're not going to do something to us and for us that would be uh, against what God is calling us to do. So we trust our leaders. So leadership is a noble task, and we should give our leaders due honor and respect. Well, we have a number of leaders, and I'm going to take a great risk here and name some names. I can't list everybody because there are people that are serving on the personnel committee and there's people serving in missions and in the kitchen and in uh, children's work and all sorts of things. But we do have elected leaders that we have in this congregation and one group of elected leaders we call elders. So if you are here as an elder, I'm going to name you and I'd like you to stand and just be recognized so we can honor you today. John Hall, Matthew Sheldrake, Lindsay Friesen, Cindy Lindbergh, Justin Buzan, and Elaine Thiessen. If you could just please stand. I know some of you, you can stand at home if you're watching online. And then we have another group of people who are trustees that we've elected. We've put them in this role. We've given them responsibility to care for the practical needs of this building. The elders give oversight and they deal with, with the spiritual direction of the church. And our trustees give practical uh, feet and hands to the ministry to do together. Larry Buzan, Doug Goble. We let Doug in? Doug Goble is, he's here. Val Chatton, June Losey, Ross Sheldrake. Did I miss anybody, Larry? I think that's our current trustees. Scott Smallwood is still there too. And then we have a treasurer that you met, Paul Connick, and assistant treasurer, Keith Scott. So here are some of our elected leaders. Can we give them a round of applause? You can be seated. And so we need to support them and love them and pray for them and follow them as we work together on this journey. Well, the last question I have is this. 
was Timothy successful? Did you ever wonder that? Ever wonder Timothy was sent with this impossible task? Was he successful? I think he was. And we get a glimpse of that when we turn to Revelation chapter 2. So by now in Revelation, John the Apostle is connected with the church in Ephesus. And after his vision on the island, he seems to, as tradition has it, goes to Ephesus and kind of retires there and eventually dies there. And uh, he's the only apostle that dies of kind of natural old age. All the others are martyred, in fact. Uh, but here's what we find in the book of Revelation as the letters are written to the churches. Listen carefully. Write a letter to the leader of the church at Ephesus and tell him this. I write to inform you of a message from him who walks among the churches and holds their leaders in his right hand. He says to you, I know how many good things you're doing. I've watched your hard work and your patience. I know you don't tolerate sin, and you have carefully examined the claims of those who say that they are apostles but aren't. You have found out how they lie. You have patiently endured without giving up. Isn't that a great hope? That Timothy was successful, I think, in getting the church on track, and leadership was essential to that track. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that ultimately he is the only true head of the church and that everything that we do just builds and grows up into him. And so we thank you for that. But we thank you, Father, that you did not leave these local congregations alone, but by your spirit you have given gifts, many of the gifts right here in this room, gifts of serving, gifts of administration, and gifts of leadership. And we thank you for those whom you have called to lead today, many of whom stood, stood among us, and we pray for them. May they be encouraged in their spirit. May they be given wisdom from you. And may they have the courage to lead us forward in mission so that we might proclaim the gospel and we might act justly in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.